The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Sportbox. In your headlines, US markets trade higher and the S&P posts its best day since March as earnings season kicks into gear with all three major averages now on track to end the week in positive territory. Banking stocks are among the winners as Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Citi and Wells Fargo all post earnings beats. As the natural gas crisis grips in Europe and prices soar, Russia's deputy prime minister tells CNBC there's a ready-made solution waiting to go. We're now awaiting the German regulator's decision. We've not received it yet, nor do we have a clear idea of when it is coming. It is obvious that Nord Stream 2 is ready for operation. The rest is up to our European partners. Hugo Boss hikes its four-year outlook amid strong demand in Europe and the Americas. But the German fashion retailer warns of the impact of renewed COVID restrictions in the Asia-Pacific region. into a, a little secret as we uh, think about how we're going to approach the beginning of the program. Steve and I and Karen generally sit around and scribble notes on pieces of paper and contemplate the price action that we saw overnight and why markets are doing what markets are doing. And sometimes you can draw an easy line to issues around data or corporate earnings. And sometimes it's a little bit more confused. And at the moment, I think there were some clear signals in the overnight trade as to why we actually have had a stronger close to the U.S. session here. Um, and so let me just run through some of these. Uh, U.S. yields fell. The market decided that the combination of labor market data that it saw and, of course, the uh, in inflation numbers were less of a worry than perhaps previously they thought. So perhaps that's one for the market not one for the central banks, perhaps suggesting that actually central banks need to be talking uh, less aggressively about normalizing monetary policy. At least this is how the market is doing the maths on these things. So jobless claims breaking 300,000 for the first time since March. We also had uh, good earnings numbers out of the banking sector and a pretty good start to this bank earnings season. So that's a quick snapshot then on how we closed out the session. As you can see, it was pretty even across the growth, the uh, cyclical stocks, the momentum parts of the market. So everybody benefiting from that feel good in the session yesterday. Let's roll over the wall. But this is where I talk about how things are a little opaque and where the signal is getting a bit confusing. So the market here uh, give, giving us uh, lower yields across the curve effectively. And just to reiterate a point that we made on the program yesterday, as you look at the two-year note, that represents the short end effectively. It's where the market is beginning to immediately think the Federal Reserve is going to go in terms of pricing money. You'd expect if the market continues to believe that we're um, heading down the road of taper and normalizing monetary conditions, that this yield would be going up. 
Um, yesterday it fell. The 10-year, it tells you a little bit about growth out to the 30-year. The market trying to imagine what the price of money is going to be in 12, 18, uh, uh, two years, uh, five years, 10 years, and so forth. And it, as it thinks about growth, it has to make a decision about whether indeed the yield should be higher or lower. The yield fell yesterday. So what is the market actually trying to tell us about inflation? Because this wonderful phrase, permanent transitory, uh, dropped into my inbox yesterday. And I thought, well, that just sounds ridiculous. How can you have permanent transitory inflation? We know that some market commentators are clearly getting their analysis wrong, but we don't know which ones until we actually get this cycle run its full course. But the bond market is telling you it doesn't believe inflationary pressures are going to be here to stay. And in fact, it may also be signalling concerns about uh, um, the bond vigilantes expressing their dissatisfaction with what they see as central banks getting too excited about normalising monetary conditions here. So the market I would suggest in the fixed income space, when it gives you a day like it gave you yesterday, it's beginning to raise questions about whether we are approaching a policy mistake from the central banks. Anyway, moving on. It's a one-day story, but it does illustrate a bit of a trend that we've seen where the bond markets are telling you a different story to the one we're getting around the inflation narrative. A quick look at the uh, uh, currency markets then. I think the important point to note here is that we've just seen the dollar ease back a little bit from recent highs. And that's something else that the uh, market bears have been looking at very closely because Obviously, as you get a stronger dollar here, it makes it a little harder for the rest of the world as it buys its commodities in dollars. Um, let me show you uh, what's going on with the commodity story then. WTI uh, finding another gear. We're over $80 a barrel here on WTI crude. You would have heard, of course, President Putin in Hadley's panel a day or so ago talking about it is possible that we go to $100 a barrel. Man who sells oil uh, to the rest of the world thinks $100 a barrel is possible, but he also knows an awful lot about commodity markets, so it is always worth listening. The uh, spot gold price here, well, I think that just reflects the fact that we've um, seen a, a little bit of risk on back into financial assets here. Gold a little easier, as you can see on this quote. How has Asia picked up the ball and run with it? Well, I have to tell you, it's uh, pretty positive across the Asian trading session. Keep your eye on the Nikkei 225 as we walk to, towards the ends of the Japanese trading day. The diet has been dissolved to uh, make plans now for the uh, upcoming SNAP Japanese election. Can uh, uh, Kishida-san win? He has uh, kind of stepped away from uh, Arbonomics. He's coming up with his own version of uh, Kishidanomics, which also has this idea of uh, levelling up, to borrow a phrase uh, that's used widely here in the UK at the moment by the current government. As far as the other markets are concerned, you, you can see uh, we're generally higher here. And uh, TSMC in Taiwan gave us some strong numbers on the chip side, some strong profitability here. So generally a bit of a feel-good around uh, some of the earnings that we've had out of that part of the world. Now, 
Um, how are we set up then for the session here in Europe a little later on today? Well, if I can find a screen, I will tell you uh, we are looking at uh, a higher open generally with the uh, FTSE 100 called up 18 points, the CAC up 26 and the FTSE MIB up 104. Karen. Jeff, uh, good morning to you. I think the market was looking for a strong piece of good news and the banks effectively serving that up with report cards uh, that crossed uh, all of the big US banks reporting earnings yesterday. Top uh, beat on the top and bottom line uh, versus expectations, largely fueled by a, a trading boom and also release of those credit loss provisions. Now, Citigroup's uh, third quarter net profits surged 48% to $4.6 billion. Revenues from equity trading and investment banking were both up a about 40% on year. So we're talking about huge increases still. And Bank of America also saw a strong performance in its trading and investment banking units and its wealth management unit reported record asset management fees. Third quarter profit jumped 58% compared to the year before to $7.7 billion, with revenue climbing 12% to $22.9 billion. And over at Wells Fargo, we saw the numbers beat on third quarter estimates with net income soaring 59% on year to $3.2 billion. The results were boosted by a reserve release of nearly $1.7 billion as fears of credit losses due to the pandemic eased. Despite the strong results, though, Wells Fargo was the only major U.S. lender to see its shares sliding in yesterday's session. The CFO, Michael Santamassimo, told CNBC that the spending spree in the United States shows no signs of abating. And there's a lot of uncertainties out there, a lot of risks out there, but we're just not seeing that translate yet into a slowdown in, you know, spend. You know, week to week, you might see a little bit of volatility in different categories or overall spend, but the trend, you know, has still been pretty stable uh, for the last uh, number of months. And, and I think when you look at liquidity balances, you know, both for, for people that got federal aid and those that don't, they're still up 40 plus percent from where they, from where they were. So, you know, the liquidity is still there. Morgan Stanley was also among the banks beating third quarter estimates on Thursday. Revenue and net income both jumped more than 25% from a year ago, aided by the recent acquisition of trading platform E-Trade and investment management company Eaton Vance. Its investment banking unit posted record results, revenue surging 67% while the wealth management business hit all-time highs in net new assets. Well, Morgan Stanley chairman and CEO James Gorman told our U.S. colleagues that his bank is now reaping the rewards of building a successful trading platform after the E-Trade acquisition two years ago. The, the reality is we're managing, you know, over four trillion, nearly four and a half trillion. And with success comes success. We have a lot of clients who feel very comfortable with the brand, the platform, the technology we've invested in through E-Trade. I mean, it's just it's all come together. This has sort of been our dream for over a decade. And finally, we're seeing the fruits of it. Uh, well, that was James Gorman. Um, Octavio Morenzi joins us, the CEO of Opiumas. Uh, Octavio, very good morning to you, and thank you for helping us decode these uh, bank earnings. One, one of the obvious features that we've seen in the earnings report so far is the banks writing back the provisions they made in anticipation of a spike in loan losses from the pandemic. Ultimately, here... They can do this once, so it's a one-off trick, if you like. Does that, in any sense, diminish what they've delivered across the board? 
Well, I think you're absolutely right. The loan provisions are going to go away eventually. They only have so much they squirreled away during COVID, uh, and that will be exhausted at some stage. So, yes, that's going to be difficult to reproduce or, imp or impossible to reproduce. But if you look at these earnings, really, they're fantastic, even not counting that. So if you look at something like JP Morgan, they were, had a return on equity of 18%, not counting the loan lo uh, loss reserves. So, uh, and if you count those in, you're over 20%. So it was a really fantastic quarter. And I think the, the really interesting thing about it is that net charge-offs, loan losses, are at historic lows. I mean, Bank of America was saying that they're at 50-year lows now in terms of losses on their loan portfolio. So they have a very, very high quality set of loans at these banks and doing fantastically well. What about the, uh, the cost side of the ledger? Have they managed to uh, hold the line on costs here, given that we know it's been a very turbulent time on, on both the uh, hiring front and uh, keeping uh, the labour that you currently have? Well, they've actually been most of them very effective at managing costs. So they've kept the costs down, carry on cutting those back. You mentioned Wells Fargo. That seems to be a bank sort of shrinking a bit. And but they are very good at the cost discipline side of things. And they've been able to maintain that and contain that. But some like Wells Fargo sees this loan portfolio shrink. And I guess we've seen most of the banks, the sort of consumer lending and corporate lending actually shrinking a bit. So that is a concerning sign. So the question is, where is the growth going to come in, in the future? Because as you pointed out, the loan loss reserves, that's going to go away. Equities trading was really, really strong, as was investment banking. But those seem to be very cyclical as well. So I wouldn't expect in the fourth quarter to see the same kind of returns on investment banking activity and on equities trading as we saw in, in Q3. So I'm not terribly optimistic about the, the future, the next quarter. I think there's going to see a bit of a, a return to normality. and We're not going to see these very strong results in the coming months. Octavia, if we just dig into the loan side a little bit further and why we're not seeing the same level of demand there, can we explain it away? I mean, if we're seeing in the, the mortgage market, there have been concerns about the amount of stock when it comes to housing. The other big component of loans can typically be cars. There's a huge transition taking place. And we know very well documented uh, stories of that, that you can't get your hands on the right car if you want to because of supply chain issues. Do you think that what we're seeing here is something that could be corrected down the track because of just, again, a few anomalies around the pandemic? Well, it certainly seems that consumers and, and corporations have become much more reluctant about taking on debt. So they've seen softness in the demands of loans. The thing on the other side of the equation is the deposits of these banks have shot through the roof. So at most of them, they're up 20, 30 percent. So they're looking at a big imbalance now between the lending portfolio and the deposits they have on hand. They are able to lend a lot more than they have so far. So the banks are there willing and able to do it, but the consumer and corporate demand has just been very, very lackluster. Now, will that change in, in the coming months and quarters? Yes, as things continue to return to normality and consumers feel more comfortable about taking more debt, that could change and should change. But that will probably take a long time. There's a fairly slow effect, I think. People are not rushing out to, uh, to, to, to take on more debt at this stage. So that will address itself eventually, but I think that will take another six or 12 months before we see the movement on that front. Do you think credit cards might be a leading indicator here? Because uh, the likes of Citigroup had a 20% jump on their credit card numbers to a record. Uh, late fees were up, people also carrying cross balances. Is that an early indication about confidence or is it one about stress in the economy? 
I think that, well, you, you could argue in part it's inflation, that things are simply more expensive, and so you see a bit of a surge in, in, in pricing because to get the same things, you have to spend more. But there really was on the credit card side and the spending side in general, a lot of pent-up demand during COVID that is surging back now. So that is, again, I think a bit of a temporary phenomenon. We'll see a surge for a while on credit card spending and spending all sorts of payments are up really, really significantly in this quarter, in this last quarter. But we're going to see that taper down as well eventually when things return to normality. So those things have been giving the banks a lot of momentum and it's hard to see, for me to see in Q4 where that momentum continues. So I, I think the payment side will calm down. The loan side, the lending side is not going to pick up at that rate. So we're going to have some some choppy waters in Q4. Well, that was not that choppy, that's overstating a bit, but basically not as spectacular as we saw so far in Q3. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? We're all trying to figure out what environment these banks are going to be operating in in Q4 uh, and then ultimately Q1 of, of next year, Octavio. Uh, and we're getting some very odd signals from the US yield curve about expectations of tapering and uh, tighter monetary conditions here. Um, give us your read across. Um, how do you think the environment changes in your opinion and what does that mean for the steepness of the curve and the ability of these banks ultimately to uh, make a better net interest margin? You're absolutely right to ask about the steepness of the yield curve. And I think a lot of people make the mistake when looking at these banks saying it's the absolute level of interest that's important. As interest levels rise, then they're going to make more money. That's not true. It's really the steepness. So it's the difference between the long-term yields and, and the short-term yields that's really important to look at. And there, the market sort of seems to be sort of going sideways a bit, not really sure. There's no real conviction in terms of the movement, in terms of the steepness of the yield curve. We've seen it go down a bit, and it's going back up now recently. Uh, but I think what we'll re really see is tapering start in the bond market uh, at the end of the year coming from the Fed. And that's going to push up interest rates overall. Uh, and it's probably going to push up long-term interest rates a bit more. So I think we might see some encouraging signs there in terms of the yield curve sort of starting to pop up a bit and, and become a bit steeper. And that certainly seems to have been the momentum in recent weeks. So I expect that's probably going to continue. But it's so difficult to make predictions about the yield curve because you've got the Fed basically intervening in a massive way and they really determine where things end up. Octavio, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks for joining us. Octavio Morenzi, the CEO of Opimas on the quality of the bank earnings that we've seen overnight. Well, still to come, we'll bring you more on the latest from the US economy as weekly jobless claims drop below 300,000 for the first time since March 2020. More on that when we come back. And if you've not had enough economic news already this week, don't forget you can tune into the Scorpbox podcast for more on the state of the recovery in the United States. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
Japan's new Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, dissolved Parliament's lower house yesterday, setting the stage for a general election on the 31st of October. The election campaign formally kicks off on Tuesday, where the ruling LDP is expected to dominate the opposition. Uh, Richmond Fed Reserve uh, President Tom Barkin says more data is required before the Fed can look to hike rates. He believes questions remain over whether the recent inflation surge will be sustained. His comments come after minutes from the bank's latest meeting show the Fed could start to taper monthly bond buying from next month. Barkin also said he doesn't expect tapering to affect demand. More on this when the Richmond Fed president speaks to our U.S. colleagues later. That exclusive coming up at 14.15 CET. U.S. weekly jobless claims dropped below 300,000 for the first time since mid-March 2020, despite the ongoing labour shortage across the country. Meanwhile, continuing claims fell by 134,000 to a fresh pandemic-era low. Producer prices in the U.S. hit their highest point since records began, climbing to 8.6% on an annual basis. The reading comes amid a surge in the cost of raw materials as supply constraints hamper output. The chair of one of the world's biggest supply chain and port logistics operators, DP World, has warned that global supply chains could remain clogged for another two years. That's due to reliance on Chinese goods. Sultan bin Suleyan said that China's zero-tolerance approach to the coronavirus has contributed to the issue, with ports closed down after any confirmed infections. Our U.S. colleagues have spoken to some of the country's major freight and shipping operators in the past 24 hours. Let's take a listen to what they had to say. What we have before us is a national crisis, a national crisis of a disrupted supply chain, waiting to get in to the port. Uh, and we had as high as 70 a couple of weeks ago. So to put that in a proper context, in normal times, we have zero, maybe one or two at best. So obviously, this has caused delays. And overall, the cost of transportation and shipping in the global markets has skyrocketed. I'll snap my fingers and hopefully we can solve it. But it really uh, requires the entire industry because we are facing just unprecedented times. We're literally living in a shipping Armageddon. Well, there's certainly work afoot uh, from uh, U.S. channels to try and open up these supply chains. I mean, President Biden has been talking to many operators and trying to extend working hours to ensure that some of that product makes its way onto the shelves and to consumers in coming months. But what we're hearing from DP Port, I think it was just fascinating that it could take two years to try and resolve this issue. And if you think about the uh, impact on inflation, we know that there's been very strong demand. There have been problems getting some of the product to market that's pushing up uh, some of the prices what we've seen. And uh, that has caused central banks to take a look and markets to also jump at uh, the prospect that uh, higher prices might be here to stay. And I think if we're talking about a two-year time frame, we have to ask what products are still going to be hampered by supply chains then? Are these ones that are quite instrumental to the basket uh, that makes up the CPI? Or is it uh, you know smaller parts of the mix that are not going to have as much of an impact? But I think if we're talking about a two-year time frame, there is a, a big question for a lot of economists out there about the true nature of inflation then. Transitory? Can you really have transitory inflation for two years without consumer expectations around inflation starting to change, Jeff? 
Um, I don't know. Uh, I think consumer expectations are already starting to change, Karen. My, my sense is that actually there is some uh, uh, demand destruction already taking place, uh, particularly, uh, I think, when it comes to the energy mix. Um, I, anecdotally, I know people who are choosing to drive less and perhaps foregoing trips if they don't have to. Some of that, of course, here in the UK has been down to the limited supply of fuel to some service stations. But I think the um, sticker price is starting to have an impact. And of course, everybody's having it drummed into them how expensive energy uh, for home heating is at the moment. So I think that's something else. Anecdotally, a lot of people are telling me that their household is under firm instructions not to touch the thermostat until at least the beginning of November. So I think that's also an amendment in people's behaviour. The thing that I'm interested in, Karen, at this point is the second round effects on other segments of the economy, because not only do we have, uh, as you point out, some specific areas of the economy where we've got price rises at the moment, but we've also got labour disruption affecting some other sectors. And we're going to talk a little later on about John Deere and about the strike action there. We're already getting fertilizer prices spiking. What impact is that ultimately going to be on machinery uh, for farms? And how will that affect harvests in 2022? So then we're talking about the fall of 2022, essentially, and perhaps higher food prices continuing into that part of the year. So there's an awful lot to conjure with at the moment, and there's an element of whack-a-mole about this whole story. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.